Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. Every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. I will never give up on trying to lessen that conflict. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Do something in life that you have a passion for, something that you enjoy and you find fulfilling. That's where you have your greatest success. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. What I said to him is absolutely a cliche, but the journey is more important than the end result. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Today is a special day for Seeking the Extraordinary. Though for a show about the extraordinary, that shouldn't be too much of a surprise. Today's show is a bit more special than usual because we are recording it in a makeshift studio in front of a live audience in the heart of the Amazon in Ecuador. Why are we in Ecuador? Because our sponsor, the Colony Group, is participating in a service and leadership trip here at the Minga Lodge with our friends from Reimagine Capital. And being in the Amazon, we are focused not only on service and leadership, but also on studying the ways in which the world and its inhabitants are rapidly changing and evolving. Now, given that we are talking about big topics like service, leadership, and change, we needed just the right facilitator who also happens to be just the right guest for today's show. He's the other reason why today is a special day for our show. Today's guest has had adventures all over the world. He's a walking storybook and a book of quotations. Indeed, a Maasai warrior in Africa once gave him the nickname Lamayan, which means one who loves to walk and talk. Our guest has sometimes been called a conversation architect. For over 30 years, he's facilitated big conversations that create big change. With two doctorates, the first finding horizontal connections as a social psychologist, and the second looking for vertical ones in divinity, he seeks the overlap. He says his why is always the same, to create connection without dots. And he has worked with exceptional organizations and people, including Jane Goodall, Oprah Winfrey, Bill Clinton, Condé Nast, We, the Philadelphia Flyers, and Life is Good. His work has included conflict mediation in Northern Ireland, designing walking board meetings in the Middle East, and large-scale change projects for Shell Oil, Barclays, GE, 
Charles Schwab, and Fidelity Investments. His clients have won the Nobel Peace Prize, the Conrad Hilton Humanitarian Prize, the World Children's Prize, the Malcolm Baldridge Award, and the Clinton Global Citizen Award. He is the author of many articles and two books, Lightning in a Bottle, Proven Lessons for Positive Change, and The Randori Principles, The Path of Effortless Leadership. I read them both, and I'm really looking forward to discussing them with our guest. Intrigued yet? Well, our guest even worked in a circus, making him one of the few people with a background in fire eating, juggling, and magic to have also taught at three of the world's top 10 business schools. Please welcome the extraordinary Dr. David Baum. Welcome, David. Thank you. Good morning, Michael. And what a wonderful thing to be talking to you this morning from the Ecuadorian rainforest in the Amazon. Yeah, it's just so great to be here and so great to have you as our guest. I'm really excited for this conversation. So when I introduced you, I mostly spoke about your professional background. Just to make this a more interesting conversation, why don't you tell us a bit more about yourself so that our audience can get a better sense of David Baum, the human being. You're very generous in sharing stories, and I've heard many of your stories. You know, so let's hear a little bit more about David Baum. Well, I'm 66, about to become 67. I grew up in Philadelphia, where I lived for many years until I was about 40. Then I fell in love uh, with my wife, who had two very small children in a small town in New England, Peterborough, New Hampshire. Uh, She had joint custody. They were five and three, and she said, you want me? The package deal. You get the kids, you get the town, you get the ex-husband. So about 27 years ago, I moved to New Hampshire, where I live now. Uh, I love the way he describes how I see myself as a conversation architect. Uh, my whole life is really fundamentally in my personal and my private life based around connection and conversation. That's what's important to me. And so everything that I do, either with profits, nonprofits, individuals, organizations, is all about that. I live right now in a beautiful house on a pond and gorgeous little town. Um, Our kids are off and living their own lives. And uh, as you mentioned, I work on the areas of change. And mostly I'm effective, except with our little Jack Russell Terrier, Bertie, uh, who is my consistent failure in life. I always describe her as being. 100% compliant and totally non-responsive. So (laughs) it's a little bit about me. You and I had a a conversation last night about a medical crisis that you had in your 40s that had a great impact on you. Would you be willing to talk about that? Of course. So the context for the story is that when I was 16, uh, I was playing tennis with my father who was 48 and he had a massive coronary and died in my arms which is a very traumatic experience to have. And that has always been come on the 50th anniversary of that experience actually just last month. And so that serves as a kind of a background for how I frame and see the world. And then when I was 42, I was with my wife in Lima, Peru. We were about to fly in the next day to Cusco, which is about, I think around 12,000 feet. And we were gonna hike in on the, into Machu Picchu on the Inca Trail. One minute I was sort of at Lima, sea level, laughing, joking with my wife on the street. And the next thing I was clutching at my chest, uh, vomiting in the street in, in pain. And of course, I knew something was deeply, deeply wrong having experienced that many years earlier. 
So I went through the Peruvian medical system, didn't speak English. It was a little bit frightening, of course, had a wonderful doctor. Um, and uh, he advised me, he said, I don't think you have, have had a heart attack. I think you had ischemia or, or angina. And I said, well, do you think I'll be okay? Can I go into Machu Picchu? And he looked at me and he said, uh, that would be very, very bad. So I got on a plane, I flew home, went to the doctors in the United States, wonderful uh, hospital in my area, Catholic Medical Center. And they said, well, we're probably gonna do an angioplasty on you, you know, where they go in, they look around what's going on, they put a little balloon in, open it up, put a stent in possibly, and that was what I expected. They woke me up on the table, and I'll never forget this, even in my fog, and the doctor said, I'm sorry, you have seven major blockages, two of them over 90%. You were essentially a day away from dead. And uh, we're going to have to perform very quickly uh, quintuple bypass surgery. That's five. And so at 42, I went in and had quintuple bypass surgery. I still remember the experience of looking at my wife as I went in. And before I went in and I said, I'm going to do everything I can to come back. But if I don't, just know that I'm a very happy guy and uh, I love you very much. And I remember I have three great days in my life. And one of them was opening my eyes after surgery. And then that all that provided. It was an extraordinary experience. I certainly wouldn't wish it on anyone. I wouldn't want anyone to have it. But medical crises can really shape us and take us to our essence of what is really important to us. And the great lesson for me, and there were so many that came from it, but the great lesson for me that came out of it was that very quickly, when you're on a street corner only in a Peru, clutching at your chest, the world gets very clear. You have a short list and you have a long list. And you know what it is in that moment. And the only advice I can really give to anybody else is focus on your short list and really try not to focus too much on your long list. Yeah, that's quite a story. And I'm obviously, of course, glad that you, uh, that you survived. Did you finally make it back to Machu Picchu? I did. I went back uh, a number of years later with two friends of mine. They're indigenous elders from Canada. One is a medicine woman, one was the chief. Uh, and we went back and hiked in together. And I did. It was a very fulfilling experience to complete that circle. Thank you for asking. So we, we talked about you being a, a so-called conversation architect. And you have worked with some truly extraordinary people. I mean, Jane Goodall, Oprah Winfrey, Bill Clinton. Will you tell us about one or two of those experiences? Sure. Well, Oprah was, Oprah was a wonderful uh, experience. It was through this extraordinary organization that I'm very close with called WE. And they had a partnership that was really about helping to develop schools and, and youth leaders uh, who would become activists and change agents. And so that was the work that I did uh, with Oprah, helping that partnership, this program called O Ambassadors, and helping that partnership go forward and being uh, sort of a voice and a guide in that. But the one of those people that I really love to tell you about is, is Jane Goodall, who I have the utmost respect, uh, affections, and love for. And there were many lessons that I've learned from her. She is quite extraordinary. She's one of these cases of... You know, we meet people and oftentimes in this world, they have outsized personalities through social media. Mm -hmm. And then our experience is one when we meet them, a little bit of disappointment. I can tell you Jane Goodall delivers, full stop. And I remember one day we were uh, talking and we were on a walk and I said to her, Jane, 
every one of your books has the word hope in it, which by the way is different than optimism. I draw a very strong distinction. Is that every one of your books has hope in it. And yet we're living in a world where you know better than I do about environmental de degradation and where the world is going. What gives you hope? And she turned to me very clearly uh, and very focused. And she said, what choice do I have? And that is really one of the great explanations I've ever known about who Jane Goodall is, is that she is hopeful and yet she is a tough pragmatist. And I think that's, those are the two qualities that are gonna be required for us to move past the struggles and the dilemmas that we as a species have put ourselves in. We have to be both hopeful, that is to hold a positive vision of what is out there because we can co-create, you know, how we hold something is what it becomes. But we also have to be very pragmatic about our responses, our reactions. And I've never thought of that hope was a pragmatic response to challenge, but it is a very powerful and exceptional one. It seems to me, just my experience with you and just hearing you speak, you, you love to quote people. You love quotes. Yeah, I can tell. Uh, and, you, and your quotes, they come from history, business, pop culture, literature, everything. And, and actually, you were good enough to share with me that you actually have, you put them into a book form, informally, uh, your favorite quotes. So give us some of your favorite quotes. So I would give you a, a few that sort of resonate for me uh, as you're asking the question. Now, I started collecting quotes and I just created a list. And some people keep a diary. I'm not that disciplined. But what I do is I keep a quote list. And if something strikes me or touches me, I just put it in. I never edit it. It's just something that I can go back and look at. And I find that, you know, you and I share a love of words. And we said last night in our discussion that words matter. And so for me, quotes are a way for me to do a fast, through the, through the language of others, a kind of a fast inside look. So a few of my favorite quotes, I love a quote by Aquinas, which is the outer work uh, will never be great if the inner work is small. I believe that we can only take out into the world as much as we can develop in our interior. I love uh, the quote uh, by Rumi, who said, move from within. Don't let fear move you the way it wants to. Begin a foolish project. Noah did. Uh, I am all about in my life, in my work, and in my personal life. Uh, when he was talking, he was really talking about the foolish projects of our own lives. But I also have loved uh, the idea that at this point in my life, as I know you are, you are about legacy, you are about impact. Uh, and I really believe I've got to put a lot of stake in the big foolish projects that are out there in the world. The big ones, the ones that are just going to be, you know, if they, they hit, they do. Because I believe the world moves on foolish projects, the big visions, the big ideas, they move on that. And if you can attach yourself to one of those and help move it along, that's important. And I would say probably my final is also a, a roomy poem that when I had my heart surgery, and that was uh, 25 years ago, and I was, you know, had that near-death experience, I started saying a short poem every morning as my prayer. And every day I wake up and the first things I do is, the first thing I do is I wake up and I open my eyes and I say to myself, I'm back, I'm alive, which is if you've ever had a near-death experience, you never take that for granted. And then I recite this one particular poem, which I'll share with you. It's a short one. Please. And it goes this way. 
The soft breezes of dawn have secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you truly want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the great door sill with a two worlds touch. The door, it's round and open. Don't go back to sleep. So my personal prayer, my personal admonition to myself every day, the reminder I have is don't go back to sleep. Wow. Just greet the day as best as you can and do not go back to sleep. I love that. And our audience, of course, cannot see this because this is a podcast, but I'm sitting across from you and you just did that all from heart. And so this is clearly something that's inside of you, ingrained in you, and clearly something that's part of you. Well, I don't do public math, but 365 days times 25 years, I should know it by now. <laughs> you know, you're also a, a master storyteller, and I love your stories. I've read some of them. You've told me some of them. Tell us a story that ends with some sort of lesson for us. So I love stories, and I'm very good at telling stories. I like them because I believe that stories are, as a quote once went, I don't remember who it was, they are the shortest distance between two people. And they are a wonderful way for people to connect in their own personal experience. So I have lots of them, but I'll give you one that is maybe my favorite of all. It's one of my favorite stories for sure. And it's about my family's origin and my own personal origin. So I come from a, a mixed marriage. My father was a New York Yankees fan and my mother was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And that's what it was like in New York City in 1953. <laughs> My father lived in the Bronx and my mother lived in Brooklyn. And I come from very, very humble stock. In fact, many of my family, the ones that made it out, escaped the Holocaust. So I am a second generation. Mm. So my mother was this extraordinarily beautiful, feisty, but very secluded individual. She was very popular in her school, voted most beautiful, that kind of thing. But she lived a very small life. She'd never been out of uh, the New York tri-state area furthest she'd ever been from her home was a little bit in Connecticut, New Jersey, and then, you know, New York City. And at the age of 19, she convinced her parents that she wanted to go on spring break and go down to Miami Beach. So they said, yes, they were very nervous about it. She went down to Miami Beach. First night, she was in the hotel. On a Thursday, she ran into my father in the elevator, and there was like an instant kismet there. Hmm. So they met on a Thursday evening, they fell in love, and my father proposed on Sunday. Can you imagine? Now, I take a year to decide what kind of refrigerator I'm going to buy, but they made this commitment to get married. So my mother called her, her mother, and she said, Mom, she said, Mom I met the most wonderful man. I'm engaged. Four days later, after she went to Florida, <laughs> my grandmother and grandfather were freaking out. My father gets on the phone, and he goes, hello, Ma. And Put Bernice back on the phone. Bernice, get home. <laughs> my mother went back to Brooklyn, Flatbush. My father went back to the Bronx. And then they started the shuttle diplomacy. So my father, first he goes to Brooklyn to meet uh, his future potential in-laws. He was wonderful and loving and generous and handsome. And he adored my mother and they got it immediately. And they gave their blessing. And then my mother had to make the long trip to the Bronx into Riverdale to meet her future in-laws. So they're quite poor, as I said, and they lived in a, a you, know, you know, those those kind of apartments in New York with the black and white tiles and you walk in and you walk up the flights of stairs and every flight smells like cooking food wherever you go. This is it. Knocks on the door. My father's mother, grandmother, opens the door and my mother 
puts out her hand. You know, by the way, let me describe to you my, my grandmother. She was about five foot eight. She dressed in all black. She had a hair and a white bun. Uh, she wore crepe shoes that squeaked whenever she walked on a linoleum kitchen floor, which is all the time. And she had a personality that was described as warm as a pickle. So my mother puts her hand out and she says, hello, Mrs. Baum, which is how it's pronounced in New York. Uh, I'm, and my grandmother puts up her hand and she goes, I know who you are, follow me. So she leads my mother into the, into this little apartment and there she takes her into the living room and all of the furniture, all of it had been removed except for 21 chairs, which were around the outside, which were filled with relatives and close family <laughs> members and neighbors and one empty chair in the middle. Imagine <laughs> 19 years old not very sophisticated. She has my mother sit down in the chair and my grandmother just goes right in. And she turns to my mother and she says, now, Bernice, before you should marry our boy Stanley, we of the family have two questions we would like to ask you. Question number one, what do you want from the family? Question number two, what are you willing to give to the family? And that's it. That's all she said. Mm. 22 people. Now my grandmother and 21 people all looking at my mother. Now you imagine 19 years old, quite naive, beautiful, but quite naive, feisty, quite naive in this situation. I can't imagine how I would have handled it. My mother takes a deep breath, straightens herself up, look, looks the pickle right in the eye. And she says, Mrs. Baum, what I want from your family is your love and your recipes. <laughs> well done. What I'm willing to give to the family is my love and grandchildren. Uh, I have nothing else to offer. And then she sits back and crosses her arms. Every one of those 21 people turns and they're looking at my grandmother. There's about 15 seconds as she's kind of pondering and rubbing her chin. And all of a sudden she looks up, claps her hands and goes, it's a match. <laughs> And uh, that was the beginning of my, my history into this world. And I love that story because embedded in it is something that I truly believe, that we are all about meeting each other's needs. Mm. We are all about asking, what do I want and what do I need from you? And then how do we create bridges of connection and communication between us, a conversation that is based upon our mutual needs? And uh, that if we are direct and honest in what we want and are specific in what we want, that's how uh, magic happens. And that's how generations get created. Great story. And I had not heard that one before. I appreciate that. So let's talk a little bit about your books. Uh, your books are Lightning in a Bottle and The Randore Principles. Uh, I've read them both. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about both of them? So Lightning in a Bottle was actually a recovery project. When I had my uh, open heart surgery, I was home for a couple of months and uh, a publisher called me and said, I've, I've heard about you, really good things. Would you be interested in writing a book? And I am always so impressed when I see people who do very thoughtful, deeply researched books, very sophisticated. I generally tend to write in more bite-sized pieces, things that people can understand, the way that I talk. I love to use stories. I love to use quotes as a way of providing little bits of information. Pretty much every chapter you write starts with a quote. Everyone, yeah. I think everyone does, and everyone usually has a story in it. 
because I believe there are lots of different ways for people to learn and to be taught. So every book, every chapter is a few pages. It has a quote, has a story, and then has a lesson and an application. And it was really what I had collected over my experiences of a lifetime at that point about what I'd learned about change and how to be able to move people through change. What are the resistances that we have? And really what makes for successful change efforts? Because it's true. I mean, it is a little bit trite, but change is really one of the great constants. And by the way, I do just draw a little bit distinction between change and transition. Change is what is happening to us externally in the world. And transition is how we respond to it. And I'm much more interested in transition because, you know, one of the great lessons on change is control what you can control. You may not be able to control your external environment, but you always have a choice in how you control your response. And so that's a lot of the foundation of that book. And one of my, the other book, The Randori Principles, is based on some work. One of my close friends, co-author by the name of uh, Jim Hassinger, uh, is in a keto black belt. I can't remember what degree, and he loves it. And he talked to me about a keto. And we decided to write a book that was about the concepts of a keto as applied to good living, right living, and good leadership. Not teaching people about a keto, but about the philosophy of a keto, which I find to be all about flow and balance and not meeting force with force, but meeting force with movement, force with creativity and force by uh, helping to steer it in a different direction in a thoughtful and nuanced way. Yeah, and all, all, all about defense as well and receiving. I, I learned from your book that I did not know this, that in Aikido, there are no offensive moves. It's all defensive. Correct. Yeah, really interesting. They call it the dance of the martial arts and it's beautiful to watch when it happens. Mm. Getting back to the concept of, of change and you are, I think of you as a, not just conversation architect, but as a change agent as well, or at least you help others be change agents. And in Lightning in a Bottle, you say that, and this is a quote, given that change is a daily part of our lives, it's truly stunning that we are not better trained to deal with it. Has that really become a, a mantra for you, a mission for you? Absolutely. I, I would say that's one of my core reasons for existence. I'm fascinated with change. I study it, I'm constantly aware of it. I'm looking for lessons that I can take in the natural world in my own personal life. Uh, and it's constant around us. I mean, here we are in the Amazon, it's gonna be a hot day today. People will have a glass of water with a little bit of ice in it. It'll take about four minutes for the ice to melt and then change into water, so, or change its form. So it's change is constantly around us and we struggle with it. I mean, we're not trained in it. We don't know how to deal with it. We are doing our very best to cope with it, particularly given a, an accelerating world. As someone once said, things are getting worse and worse, faster and faster. And change is that great constant. And it really helps us if we know how to deal with change that we can, I think of always as waves, as a metaphor, that we can surf over them with less resistance rather than fight through them for with lots of resistance. Hmm. So that's... That's how I see it. And, and my goal is to really both learn, teach, and facilitate people being, for lack of a better term, change surfers. Yeah. And our ability to change is just so important. David, I actually wore a special t-shirt for you today. And since, again, it's a, it's a podcast, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to allow you to read it if you don't mind. If you're delighted. You can see it. Let's see. It is not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent that survives. It is the one that is the most adaptable to change. 
Ooh, right. I like that. And that's, of course, you know, a very Darwinian concept. And I just came back from the Galapagos and this was one of the, uh, the t-shirts that I just had to have. Um, you agree with that concept? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's all, it, I mean, life is all about adaption and it is all about plan B and it is all about responding to the environment we're in. I don't think anybody, you and I would probably agree or anybody who's watching this today or would listen and you were to compare, let's say, um, how do we compare in terms of species as humans to, let's say, mussels or oysters? We would say we're a much more advanced species. We're much more effective at surviving. But if all of a sudden the world were covered in a foot of water or two feet of water, the environment around us would change our circumstances very quickly. Hmm. And so our ability to be able to adapt to a changing world and changing environment, wherever that is, uh, is a very important thing. You have a, an interesting take on the old mandate, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, that's the, the, the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We've been taught that uh, in our Sunday schools, our mosques, our churches. We learned them in our, you know, our school systems. We were raised with that. I taught my kids that. Uh, and it's in principle, it's, it's not a bad thing, but it has probably created more harm and conflict in its own way than almost anything else that I've certainly have taught my kids. And the reason for that is because the way I see the world, the way I want conflicts to resolve, the way I want to be communicated with, the way I want information shared, uh, the way I like to work in the pace and whatever, is not always the way other people do. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a stunningly egocentric point of view. And it puts you at the center of your experience, which then allows you to project that onto everybody else. And that's a dangerous thing. I, I would hypothesize it would create a lot of problems in this world through the golden rule. So I just changed it a little bit. Some people have called it the platinum rule, uh, which is do unto others the way they want to be done unto the way they want to be done into. And if you can understand and spend time thinking about what is it that others truly want and spend time to really think about what is the best way to connect with them, what is their process in the world, and to find a way to match that. And by the way, a little hint here, basically, fundamentally, we only want two things in life. We want to be heard and we want to be appreciated. And how that gets communicated is very important. If we can do that, then we're likely going to create a lot less resistance for ourselves and be more effective in how we communicate. It's a fascinating insight. So it, it, it seems to me that one of the key elements in lightning in a bottle is, is breaking down why it is that we as people are so resistant to change. And as the CEO of a, of a large financial services company myself, I, I seek change, not for the purpose of change, but in order to make sure that we are evolving with the times and with the circumstances. We are adapting much like the, uh, the quote that you just read from my t-shirt. So what are the things that we need to do to unleash change? How is it that we can get people to overcome their resistance to change? That's a very big question. And that's me. It is, but you're just the guy to answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a very big question. And it's a very, it's going to be a very good podcast series, actually. But I'll give you a few thoughts yeah, just to think about. The Cliff Notes version. Cliff Notes version. So the first is to be aware of the fact that one of the cardinal principles about change is that all change mandates loss. All change mandates loss. 
It's a change from something to something else. And there's a loss involved. So it is to acknowledge what that loss is personally, or what that loss is in an organization or in structures. And even if it's changes that we want, even as changes that we're interested in, that sense of loss unconsciously has us attached to what is the old rather than allowing us to move forward into the new. That would be one thing. The second is, is that even though we say we want change, and in fact, you know, we can know something is important for us. We know something is good. We know that something is a direction we need to move in. There are always benefits we get in not changing our behaviors, benefits that we get in not. So from that point of view, I would say, if you find yourself resistant to change, whatever that is, then it would be very important uh, to really look, take a hard look at what are the benefits that one gets in not changing their behaviors. Uh, sometimes it's around fear. Sometimes it's around pride. Sometimes it's around control. Uh, those are oftentimes, the, I would call the three horses of the apocalypse that keep mm -hmm. us resistant. But it really is this idea that we get an unconscious, conscious, but an unconscious benefit from uh, not changing and our resistances. And it's important to find a way to acknowledge that. And then another thing that I think is very useful to think at a personal level, and then I'll talk about leadership in, in, in a second, but at a personal level, we need to get comfortable being in the ambiguity of change and expanding ourselves out of comfort uh, into something that is unique and different. And there's a practice that I would offer to your listeners and to you today that I follow and personally followed for many years. It's in an ancient Basque practice. This was taught to me by a great teacher of mine, Angela Zarian. And she was Basque and she said, among the Basque traditions, one of the traditions they have is on the anniversary of your birthday every month. So I was born October 15th, 15th of every month I do this. I, uh, you are encouraged to do something you've never done before in your entire life, ever. So whether it's, I walk, I walk a mountain every morning is my exercise. One morning, I just walked it backwards. One time, one of the things I did was uh, I sang to my wife, which I never do in front of a group of people that came to me for, came to us for dinner. Uh, I will try something new every month that puts me on an edge that I've never done before. And the teaching is that that shows you then that when a full year goes by, you have faced the unknown 12 times. Now, why do that? Do it for two reasons, according to the Basques. One, uh, you do it because it helps you to build that change muscle. It's really important. And then the second thing that it does is it helps you to prepare for the great change in our lives, which none of us can avoid, which is our own deaths. And so that is a wonderful practice that oh, I've I love that. Yeah, love that. that's 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 I, I that's the kind of thing I could see myself doing. Love that. I have a feeling you're going to be yeah. doing it right away. I, I love it. You, you speak of the four stages of transition, denial, resistance, exploration, and commitment. I, I can understand those, those stages. And you also speak of the four ingredients of change. And I really like this uh, because it's something that I think about a lot. What does it take? What are the ingredients of change? You say a clear shared vision, the internal capacity for change, an external pressure for change, and actionable first steps. So is it that simple? 
Yeah. Now, let me just be very clear. I think it is that simple. There's always nuances, obviously, about how you build the structures and how you make those things happen. I want to draw a very fine distinction here. And it's very important that simple does not mean easy. In fact, some of the hardest things in our lives are, we know them to be true. They're simple to do, but they're hard to live into. And I would say of the four that you put, each one of this is important, but one I would like to highlight this morning, which is where I see the greatest failure coming. And it comes from a wonderful study that was done many years ago by John Cotter and Jim Heskett at Harvard University, great experts in leadership. And one of the things that they found in their research, and this is for organizational leaders, or this is for anyone on a personal level when you're trying to engage other people in change, is that leaders failed to communicate their vision of where they are going by a factor of 10. They undercommunicate by a factor of 10, this creating a shared vision. And shared vision is often occurs through engagement and repetition. Now, that is a stunning piece of research to me, stunning. It has shaped my advice and counsel to individuals uh, for decades. Because even if you were to do half of what they said, just face value. Most people do not talk about, keep it alive and create a shared vision for where they wanna go. Uh, and even if you were to do it five times as much as what you're doing, you will still probably be under communicating. So it's, it is an old statement, but communicate, communicate, communicate. It is probably one of the most important things. And of course, as you said, my, and I said earlier, it is about being a conversation architect, which is all about creating conversation and connection. And I, and I live by the E.M. Forster quote, only connect. It is just about just connect, mm. connect, connect, connect. And it is about connecting on vision and the repetition of the story, the repetition of the vision. So people get aligned because at the end, I'm sorry, I'll just add one thing because at the end of the day, what moves things forward is two things. One alignment, no daylight between what I'm thinking and you're thinking and moving forward. And the second is force of will. I can relate to, to that, that concept. I, I do my best whenever I'm in front of my own company to repeat our vision, to talk about our vision, which is a shared vision that we came up with collaboratively. And yet there have been people recently who have suggested that that's not necessary, that I shouldn't repeat it as often. And then I begin to wonder whether maybe I'm hearing people who are consciously or subconsciously resistant to change. Well, I don't know the people and I don't know the context, but the way that I think about it is the things that are important, we need to keep in the conversation front and center. Mm -hmm. I'll make it personal. If my wife came to me and we've been married for 27 years and she came to me and she said, do you love me? I said, of course. Well, you never tell me you love me. And if I said to her, well, what do you mean? I never tell you. I, I told you the day we were married, I loved you. How much more of a statement could I make? she would have a very appropriate grievance would be my thought about it. And yeah. so the things are important. Like I'm sure you tell your kids, you love them you tell your I wife, do. Dawn, you love them on I a do. frequent basis. The things are important are always worthy of repetition, always worthy of acknowledging, keeping front and center because the world pulls at us. And it is important to keep retelling the narratives of what are important to us. And that's, that's why I think it's so important. Love it. What does it mean to live in the leap? Live in the leap basically means that we have two ways that we can approach the world. 
One way to approach the world is I will not move forward into taking change or move forward into my life's dream unless I know what the clear answers are going to be and I see the forward path. And we're living in a world where it is becoming harder and harder to see over the horizon. And I am always a big believer in you do your best and go kind of with the 80-20 principle and you figure out the rest. And sometimes you just have to make a commitment, go for it and trust both in yourself, trust in your relationships and trust in larger forces around us that things will work out and you will figure it out. I'm a big believer in figuring it out and figuring it out also in terms of my work uh, is based in iteration. That's what iteration is. That's what innovation is. It is always move forward, take your lessons, ask what comes next, move forward, take your lessons, ask what comes next. That's what live in the leap is. It is about trust. You know, that old statement, uh, leap and the net will appear, but it's a matter of faith. But it is also really living in a leap is a process, a process of learning. And this kind of takes me to this idea about the difference between perfection and excellence. Mm. Perfection does not tolerate mistakes and oftentimes makes people fearful. Excellence incorporates mistakes. And that's what living in the leap has to be about. It is about accepting our growth, accepting our learnings, and then moving forward and learning from our mistakes and then moving forward. Yeah, I think your words were, were seek excellence, not perfection. I, I, I wrote that down. Yes. Another concept that really resounds with me is to, quote, find the meaning in it all. I think I understand the concept, but why don't you say more about that? Well, each of us, I believe, have something that has things that have great meaning for us. And this really gets back to this short list, long list thing that I was talking about earlier. You know, there's a lot of, if you wanted to go out and if you Google, for instance, change or books on change, I, I can't imagine how many articles and books would come up. And if you Googled happiness, how many books and articles come up? But let's take happiness, for instance. Happiness is something that people strive for, but my belief is it's an outcome. It's not a thing that one goes for. It is something that comes from other things. We are happy because of other things. And I think what gives us great happiness and great joy is when we find meaning and purpose. And among all great religious traditions around the world, the search for meaning, that is, what is it that fills me up? What is most important to me? And what gives me that sense that when I think about it, I lean forward and my heart opens. Those few things are where we should be spending most of our time. And those things that are not, I would diminish them. So meaning, finding what that meaning is, asking for that. And I would, anybody who would read Viktor Frankl's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, it is a beautiful book. It's probably one of the great guides for living in the world. Uh, his whole thesis is around that we control everything that happens to us. Uh, it is a choice that we make, and that choice has to be based on what is most important to us and what brings meaning to us. And he was, he basically studied this as a Jew in Auschwitz in the concentration camps, and he found people there, even in the worst despair, if they focused on the things that were important and critical and urgent, even, even if they were near death, even if the world around them was really struggling. Uh, even if they knew their, their life was going to be ending. And he tells us one story about a woman in a hospital who was near death. And all she could do was she could look out a window 
and she could see a cherry tree that was in blossom. Mm. And she attached meaning to that. And it made the end of her life a beautiful and warm one because she found meaning everywhere she went. Mm. That's, that's the way I think about me. Yeah. We were talking yesterday about, about Freud and, you know, Freud says that all people really need are is connection with people and meaning, purpose. That's right. And we live in a world where people are finding, we used to be given our, our purpose and meaning in earlier days, but with choice, we also have distraction and we have to be very careful about what is important for us or not. You know, I, I work in a world where I'm around a lot of very high net worth people. And I spent a lot of time in that world. And it is always sad to me how people have spent a life acquiring wealth and acquiring things. And yet, because they have lacked meaning, uh, they are less happy than many of the people that I experience here in the Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Another really interesting thing that you note in your book is that it's okay for leaders to flip-flop. And I really want to talk about this because I, we see this, we see the concept demonized by the media, especially as it relates to our political leaders, this concept of, of uh, gotcha, you, you know, this person flip-flopped on a position. Tell us more about your thinking about this concept of, quote, flip-flopping. Yeah. So I want to draw a distinction between honest learning and, and evolving in her learning versus strategic manipulation. So I know that for a while in the political realm, this whole idea of gotcha and we become very divisive is all about, well, you said this then and now you say this now. And particularly social media where everybody is tracked on everything that they say. And I'm sure I might even get blowback from this podcast on something I would say, who knows? But I, I never think if it's a bad thing for people to be learning. I don't think it's a bad thing for people to be evolving. I mean, we started a conversation talking about your t-shirt and evolution and adaption. Uh, I think it's a sign of great maturity in a leader that they can hold a position, have a position, and then shift that position over time as they learn more. I worry about leaders that get stultified and get locked into a perspective that does not allow them to see a broader point of view and thus be flexible and adapt. Now, that's different than people who adapt their message for, quote, strategic reasons or politics or to earn votes or whatever. That I'm, I'm not implying is a good thing. But what I am implying is a good thing is I want to follow leaders who learn. I want to follow leaders who are open. I want to follow leaders who are willing to take information in and adapt. And all of those components are very important to me. And that's the, the differences that I see. I think it's just something we should all be much more mindful about and uh, much more comfortable with. So one of the things that we talk about is, I think it's very consistent with, uh, with your message, David, uh, at my own company is, is we talk about the importance of meaning and joy. And you just talked about finding meaning in it all. What about the joy part of it? Well, I love joy, being joyful having connections with people where we laugh and there's a sense of joy uh, is a very important part of how I try and live my daily life. Partially because I think one of the things that we want in individuals is the ability to bring energy into a conversation. We all have been in conversations where afterwards, like you and I, we have this great connection. And when we talk, I feel a sense of joy. But more importantly, I know that because I'm energized. 
We also have people that we get enervated by. We just feel like it's a, a, an energy suck. And generally I feel less joyful. So one of the values of joy is it gives us energy in either our connection or things that we're doing. But I also believe that joy is a choice. It is a daily reminder to choose joy, to choose beauty, but to choose joy. I mean, every day in our lives, every day, no matter where you are, no matter what your circumstances are, there is joy somewhere around you. And your job is to place yourself in that sort of that atmosphere or in the way of that joy to feel it. And it is a choice. And the best story I can possibly tell you about this is many years ago, I was in India. I was in South India and I went to a, a very special temple. Uh, and it was a temple to Ganesh. Ganesh, the remover I, of obstacles. Ganesh, the, yeah. Sure. Half elephant, half man, uh, Hindu deity. And it was an extraordinary place. It was like a thousand stairs carved into this mountain. And you would come around a corner and there'd be singing and dancing. You come around another corner, there'd be a small room and there'd be an elephant in there blessing people. And it was quite an extraordinary experience. And I remember I was coming down and I passed a gentleman who was a beggar and he was quite desperate looking. I mean, quite desperate looking, poor and uh, shockingly poor. And if anyone has ever spent time in India, to say that someone was one of the most destitute people you'd ever seen, that's really saying something. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had a filthy little red loincloth on, had an old begging bowl, uh, half of his fingers or fingertips were missing from leprosy, parts of his face were missing, his hair was matted, uh, he was filthy. I, I could smell him from 10, 12 feet away. And I was doing that thing, you know, that sometimes Americans can do where I'm not trying to look, but I'm kind of looking, but I don't want to make eye contact because I'm going to get hit up for something, you know, that kind of defensive disconnection. And I remember I passed him and he kind of caught my eye and his eyes were bright, but they were jaundiced and yellow and bloodshot. And he had a few teeth in his mouth and he turns to me and he says, are you happy? And I was just shocked by the question. That's all he asked me. Are you happy? Another way of saying it is, are you in joy? And I thought, and I looked at him and I said, yes, yes, actually I am. And then he smiled, showing about four teeth in his mouth. And he said, <laughs> me too. And that small interaction was the greatest teaching uh, I had in those three weeks in India. Because what he taught me was a man who, from my point of view in the world, has almost nothing. I mean, nothing compared to what I measure and count by. He had everything because he chose a path of joy. He chose a path of happiness and he woke up every day committed to that path and it changed how he was in the world and how he saw it. You know, I think as we're talking about change um, and the things that we need to learn as skills, there is a question that can help us. One of the things that keeps us, I think, from joy, from happiness, and from adaption to change, and one of the benefits that we get in not changing is we ask the question, why is this happening to me? And when we say, why is this happening to me? We can all say that almost every day. When we say, why is this happening to me? The, we put ourselves as victims yes. of the circumstances. Now, what does victimization give us? What it gives us is it gives us a sense of innocence that somehow I'm not responsible. I have no role in this. The problem is, is that when we hold ourselves as a victim, when we are innocent, we have no control then over being able to change our circumstances. 
So one way to seek joy when we are in difficult situations is to ask the fundamental question, why is this happening? Not to me, but why is this happening for me? And then say, is there a way that I can learn from this and then find a way to joyfully move forward? That is oftentimes for me, a practice of moving through my difficulties. Sure. And, and in that sense, things happen as part of our spiritual journey and we have to see them that way and not as victims, but rather they're there for us, as you say. And this is a, a somewhat similar message that uh, that we heard from Kaylee Klemp when we interviewed her. She's one of the co-authors of the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. And uh, she talks about this concept of evolving from a to-me mindset to a by-me mindset to a through-me mindset and ultimately for the, you know, the divine to an as-me mindset. I want to get back to this, this concept of you know, going from it's happening to me and it's happening for me and this concept of a spiritual journey that we're on What's your spiritual journey? Can you describe it? Are you aware of it? Yes, uh, I am. And at first, let me draw a distinction that I think is very important for your listeners between spirituality and religion. You know, you have a doctorate in divinity. People ask you a lot of questions about it. Very curious. Uh, and the way I, I think it's a simple description. If I was to think of a cup of tea, the tea that is in the cup I think of is spirituality. The cup itself is religion. In my own spiritual journey, I am not very committed or connected to the form. I am much more interested in the tea. That is what is in it. And the form oftentimes is where separation occurs. The tea is oftentimes the same. Uh, and my big learning in this happened when I was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. So I was raised a conservative Jewish, Philadelphia. Uh, I went to Hebrew school, I was bar mitzvah, I was confirmed, you know, I went the whole route. And Judaism to me when I was growing up was promised like a rich, dark, moist chocolate cake. And what I was given was a freeze-dried wafer. (laughs) It just, I don't know if you had the same experience, just a freeze-dried wafer. It's pretty dull. But my parents had this idea and they sent me on one of these synagogue trips, uh, all good boys go to Israel. And so when I was 13, I went on a two week trip to Israel. You know, we hit all the hot spots, Masada, you know, the Dead Sea floated around the The wall, the wall. And we went to the wall. It was a Friday and uh, the Western Wall is an amazing place. Uh, And it's uh, it is just extraordinary, powerful place. Now, remember, I've never had a spiritual experience in my life. I've never had a mystical experience in my life. I had no sense of how this all worked. Uh, I basically took, I don't know, eight years of Hebrew school lessons, Hebrew lessons. All I can remember is Sheket Bavakasha, quiet, please. That's the only thing that I remember. <laughs> and something compelled me, uh, Michael, to just close my eyes because I was surrounded. It was a Friday afternoon and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Orthodox Jews there and they were praying. And the Jewish word for praying when they chant and they pray is called davening. And it has a, a beautiful kind of rhythm response. And you both pray. And then every time you say the name of God, you bend your knees and then you bend forward a little bit. And so there's a kind of a rocking motion that one does. So I'm 13. I don't know what to do. I'm just following my own instincts. I'm listening to this and I just close my eyes. I have my eyes closed. And then all of a sudden I chart to, to spin, but I wasn't physically spinning. Remember, 13 years old. I wasn't physically spinning. It was like when you were in college and you had some bad tequila and you fell, you fell onto your bed and the room spins around you. It was that. I deny that that ever happened. Yes. Well, it, it <laughs> so I'm spinning and then uh, I started to leave my body. 
And now I'm about 30 feet above myself, looking down on myself, rocking back and forth, rocking, but completely calm. And as I'm hearing this davening, watching this with a kind of observer point of view of a 13-year-old, off to my left, over the davening of all these Orthodox Jews, off to my left, I heard church bells going on. Hmm. And off to my right, I heard call to prayer, call to prayer, Islamic call to prayer. And in that moment, for the first and only time in my life, I heard a declarative voice from the outside talking to me. Now, 13, you got to imagine this is quite shaping. And the voice said, you see, it's all the same. It's all the same. And in that moment, in that one moment, I had this picture that came into my head. And the picture is when we are born into this world, we are born with a gold bar. And that gold bar represents our connection with the divine, something that is important if you're, any of your listeners believe in that. And sometimes that gold bar is wrapped in Hanukkah paper, Christmas paper, Ramadan paper, Diwali paper. It's wrapped in all kinds of paper but that the gold bar is the same. And what we fight over, what we fight over is the wrapping paper. And at 13, all of a sudden it became clear to me how incredibly absurd and ridiculous that was. So my spiritual journey has really been, and there's a phrase that is out there, which is one river, many wells. My spiritual journey has been about the river and looking for the commonality across religious traditions and looking for the commonalities in the gold bar versus what is different, the wrapping paper. And what I find in, in the, the program I did in Divinity was through a guy by the name of Matthew Fox in Naropa University. Uh, and it was based in the work of the mystics and prophets across traditions. And what I learned uh, very clearly was, is that if you were to think of a bell curve and on one side of the bell curve uh, are your sort of fundamentalists, they ask definitional questions. What is your definition of God? My God looks like this. My God does that. My God promises you this. My God promises you that. My God will tell you, if you do this, you'll get into heaven. Or if you don't, you'll get punished. They're definitional. And that's the question they're essentially asking, what is my definition of God? But if you go to the other end of the bell curve, where you'll find are the mystics and the prophets, they ask a different entry question. And the question they ask is, what is your experience of God? It is in the experience that we find the gold bar, the experience that we find commonality, the experience that we find connection. I would have a very hard time talking about definitional uh, information or perspective, uh, let's say with a, a fundamentalist Christian, just it would, it would be a very difficult conversation if we were to get into, and you know, we've all been people knock on our door, gotten cabs, have you find Jesus, that kind of thing. It never goes well. But if I could, I could talk to anybody, if I said, what is your experience of God? And then we started about, I experience God when I'm in the woods. I experience God when I'm in nature. I experience God when my kids come and hug me and kiss me. I experience God when I get in bed and I smell wipes, my wife's hair. Mm -hmm. It's in the experience of the divine that is our salvation for connection as a species. And, and that's, that's what my spiritual journey has been all about. Finding what is that a common experience and then sharing it and encouraging that in others. Mm -hmm. I really love that. It's a, it's a great way to think about how we all think about something beyond us and above all of us. So you are a believer. You, you believe in some sort of divinity. And, uh, and do you believe that there's something after life? I do. And, you know, it's really interesting. Again, you, people find out you have a doctrine in divinity, you get a lot of questions. Well, that's why I have to ask you that question. Okay. It's something I think about a lot. It is. And, and, and I would say... For me, it's a matter of faith. 
I have no proof. There's no evidence that I can really suggest on it. I mean, there are books, you know, Proof of Heaven, that kind of book, which is very interesting. But for me, it's it's just a, a deeper feeling. But I also would want to say that uh, I find it to be a relatively uninteresting question. Is there something else? Is there a heaven? Uh, it's not the way that I live my life. I don't live my life for that. I, I'm very much moved by the, there's, a, there's an adaption that I'm going to give of this very famous quote by John Wesley. And, and this is my uh, approach to spirituality or this answer to the question of heaven. And the adaption is this. I wake up every day and I think to myself, do as much good as you can for as long as you can, for as, as many people as you can, as best as you can. Mm. And I find that if I ask those four questions and I make my intention for the day, do as much good as I can for as many people as I can, as best as I can, and you know, that those four things that I'm willing to take whatever comes my way when I die, the rest out of my control, uh, I will do my very best. And then hopefully, you know, when I get to heaven, someone will say, welcome aboard. Nice to see you. It took a while getting here. We're glad about that. Yeah. And then off we go. Yeah, for me, it's not so much about how I live my life. It's just more about um, you know, getting comfort that there is something beyond death, whatever that might be. Have you ever uh, read the book or and or seen the movie Life of Pi? Oh, yes. So I, I love I love that uh, you know, Pi is speaking to the the narrator, and he's telling the story of he, he's a boy and he's with his family in India and they have the zoo and they're bringing all the animals. Uh, from the zoo to the to America on a ship, and uh, they're going to move the whole zoo to to the United States, and uh, and there's a horrible storm, and the ship goes down, and his entire family perishes, the entire crew of the ship perishes. He's the sole survivor, and along with him is a tiger, uh, a monkey, and maybe a zebra, and uh, and he tells the story of how they all survived. For a while in a in a single lifeboat and then ultimately of course the tiger eats the other two animals and the tiger tries to kill and eat him as well and he gets to a sort of a detente with the tiger ultimately they're rescued uh, and he becomes close with the tiger they're they're both almost dead at the time that they you know they finally you know get shelter on land and and as he's telling the story the person that's listening to the story who's writing down the story and going to write a book about it he has an epiphany and he realizes, wait a minute, maybe those weren't animals that survived. Those were people, weren't they? And the tiger was actually the cook and he killed and ate the other people and he tried to kill and eat you. Is that really what happened? And, and Pai says to him, well, which story would you prefer to believe? The story about the animals or the story about people? And, uh, and he says, well, I, I guess I prefer to think it's the story about the animals. And, uh, and Pi says, and so it is with God. It's just a question of what you want to believe. And if it makes you feel happy and gives you comfort to believe in something beyond, then believe it. That's the way I try to, I think, I try to think about it. I love that. And this takes me back to that earlier story in India. It's a choice. Yeah, right. It's right. Joy is a choice. It is a choice. And belief in something larger than themselves is a choice. It gives me a sense of solace. Mm -hmm. And from that is probably the single most important thing. Tell us some of the core lessons. That, what, what are some of the core lessons that you've learned in your life that you could share with us? Well, I'll tell you some of the things that guide me in terms of the way I, I live my life in probably three or four 
and of course, I'm going to, one or two will be based on good quotes. Of course. Uh, the first, first quotes for a story. Quotes for stories. The first is a quote by Meister Eckhart, great Catholic theologian. And what Eckhart said was, we change through delight. So this pulls into the joy theme. I believe that as much joy as we can bring delight, that's what people really want. That's what I want. And that's one of the pathways to change. So bringing in as much delight and joy as I possibly can is important to me. I would say a second one, which I've already said is the outer work will never be great if the inner work is small. It's all about developing your inner resiliency, your inner work, doing good things, always being on edge, always moving forward. The impact you will have in the outer world is only going to be matched by your inner world. And I've, I've worked with a lot of leaders, some of which are deeply flawed and some of which uh, do are not quite introspective and they eventually oftentimes will have miserable lives or burn their organizations to the ground. Uh, and then I would say is my core fundamental practice that I have, the thing that really took me through my heart surgery and many of the challenges I've had in my life. Again, I would like to reference this cross-cultural anthropologist, Angela Sarian, who did a study of all great traditions around the world. And what she found was we live in very complex times, but the pathway through complexity is generally not more complexity. The pathway through complexity is a simple, clear approach. Mm. And she said, if we want to live a life basically free of stress, grief, aggravation, pain, surprise, all that kind of thing. Uh, there are four things that you can find in almost all traditions, and you'll find them in religious traditions, indigenous traditions, really all over. And there are four basic themes that you can track. And I have oftentimes found that when I have created a lot of complexity in my life is because I violated one of these four, what she called uh, four rules to a simple life. So I'll share them with you. Please. And your listeners. Rule number one, show up, show up. I mean, what that means is be fully present, be fully engaged, bring your presence forward that, uh, or as Whitman once said, we convince by our presence, show up. And it's a fundamental question to ask where in my life am I fully showing up for myself and where am I not? And where I don't sh fully show up for myself, for a relationship, for the things that are important, for this idea that we've been talking about of change, whatever that is, uh, we will create a lot of kerfuffle around us. Second, pay attention to what has heart and meaning. And we've talked about this a lot, but I always, a great lesson in that is I, and obviously I love the poet Rumi and Rumi has a wonderful poem that says, today, like every other day, we wake up frightened and alone. Do not go to the library to read a book. Instead, take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty you love be what you do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Uh, it's not that he's opposed to libraries, of course, but don't go into the head. Go into something that is of the heart, a musical instrument. Take that down. Let the beauty you love be what you do. Hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. And so pay attention to what has our meaning is really about every day. Make sure that you are guiding yourself, shifting yourself, pivoting yourself to the fundamental question we've really been addressing, which is why am I here and what's the impact I'm going to make and what has heart meaning for me? Hmm. Third uh, is speak your truth without blame or judgment. Speak your truth. Say it. We have a tendency to do one of two dysfunctional patterns. We either abnormalize the normal. That is, we make things bigger than they need to be. We get into powers of inflation and drama, 
or we abnormalize, uh, abnormalize normal or normalize the abnormal. We move into everything's fine, everything's good. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And when we do not say what's so, when it's so for us, yes. then oftentimes what happens is we can also create a lot of anxiety issues and challenges around us. And then the fourth, uh, which you will find definitely in every spiritual tradition, and it is the one that is the hardest for me, is be open to outcome and not attached to outcome. Detachment doesn't mean that we don't try. Detachment means that we do our very best and then whatever happens afterwards, we accept it and then we move on. And I can get very attached to the way an outcome ought to be or strategy ought to be or something ought to be. And when I am overattached is where I create unnecessary challenge for myself. So those four rules are really my guiding principles that I use in my life that keeps me sort of, they're my guardrails. They keep me going in the direction that wonderful. Go. I'm I'm going to write those down and uh, and commit them to memory. I love those, uh, David. I'm going to ask you two more questions. Then we're going to get to our extraordinary teaching segment. We're in the Amazon right now, and it seems appropriate to 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 talk about that or at least reference it. So, how might you apply all of these learnings? And this may be a hard question for you, but how could you apply all of these learnings to how we think about our setting? So there's a lot, and I don't know if your listeners can actually hear, there's incredible birds going on out there. I hear them as well. I hope they can hear them. It's just bird song, amazing. Constant bird song. Woke up this morning, saw a, a mountain in the distance that had, uh, actually, it's an old volcano that had snow on it. We're on a river that's tributary to the Amazon. I mean, it is an extraordinary place that we're in. And there's probably a lot that could be said and much better said than me, but I will offer two points of view on this. The first is the Amazon teaches us about interdependency. Everything that is out there relies on everything else, everything, and nothing is more important than anything else. Everything relies, and there's a, a level of interdependency that you can't help but not notice or see the vines, the animals, the birds, everything always working together and they need each other in very specific ways. So interdependency is one of the great lessons of the Amazon, that we are not separate. We cannot dominate. Uh, in fact, to be very clear, if we were to leave this beautiful facility that we're at called Menga Lodge, and it went barren for a year, the jungle would reclaim it. Uh, these buildings would become interdependent with trees and animals and so on and so forth. So interdependency is a very important lesson that we can learn. And it's really about not just interdependency, but partnership at its deepest level. Mm. For me, on a personal level, one of the things that I'm reminded of when I'm in nature, and particularly in the Amazon, is what are the rhythms of nature versus the rhythms that we have created as a species in humanity? So when we look at the indigenous people of this region, right, just look at the, the, the pace of the Amazon. The rhythm of nature is slow to medium. But we move at a tend to at a very fast rate. Now, speed is very good for ideation, but it is not very good for connection. It is not very good for conversation, which, as you know, are the two things that are important to me and are not very different for seeing through things and what is really going on. For that, we have to slow down. Most things move very slowly in the Amazon. If you look at the way bugs are moving or amphibians are moving or snakes are moving or even the birds. Uh, the only reason things move quickly here is in danger. Mostly everything else is moving at a much slower rate. 
if we can learn to move at the rhythm of the jungle, of the Amazon, of the rainforest, what we will notice and see and will be impacted by will be much greater. You know, in any, anything that is going on, there's something that's going on and always something else is going on. If we're moving quickly, we tend to focus on what the something is, no matter what it is. But where we can make great progress and have great nuance and sophistication is if we can also pay attention to the something else. And whatever that is, however that will show up. And if we move too quickly, we'll never see it. And that's for me is the gift of the Amazon, to slow down and notice and put yourself in its rhythm versus trying to force your rhythm on it. I feel like that's happening for me naturally. Maybe it's just the magic of the place that we're in right now. Thank you for that. My last question before our extraordinary teaching segment, I, I thought about where to place this question, but I wanted our audience to get to know you and get to know the way you think before I asked the question. So is it true that you really worked in a circus? Yes, it, it is. I was with an Irish circus called Tom Duffin Circus, and I traveled a bit with Ringling Brothers because uh, my best friend in high school went on to become Ringling Brothers' second African-American clown. So oh, I got an invitation to travel with them and I did. So yes, I was in a circus and two circuses, one in Ireland, uh, one in the United States. I was essentially uh, a clown. I was a juggler. I was a fire eater. I was a magician. <laughs> I did the whole thing. Uh, as my family says, a little song, a little dance, a little seltzer in the pants. Truly a renaissance, man. Love it. All right. So we're going we're gonna to now go into our extraordinary teaching segment. And this is where I'm going to ask you a series of questions that I ask all of our extraordinary guests. And you can be a little bit quick with your answers. The idea is to just get it out there. see how you respond to these things. Hey, I'm interested to see what they're going to be. All right. What's been your most satisfying accomplishment so far? Oh, God. Great question. My most satisfying accomplishment uh, are my children. Uh, I love who they become. I so deeply respect uh, their points of view. Uh, I'm so proud of who they are. They truly are my legacy. My kids. Do you have any regrets? Oh, yeah, many. Uh, I would say many. What first comes to mind is I, I'm always regretful when I am not in full integrity. And I, it's not like I don't know better, uh, but when I am weak-hearted, Oftentimes, it's where I am most regretful, how that plays out in personal relationships. You know, I have a second marriage, my first marriage, I was out of integrity. I didn't feel good about that. That would probably be my biggest regret. It, and by the way, regret oftentimes comes for me not in the things I did say, but usually the things I didn't say or didn't do out of fear or lack of, of courage. What single tip would you offer that has helped you be your most extraordinary self? Mm. My single tip is that thing I gave about try something once a month. That would be important. And put yourself, particularly as we become older and more sophisticated, uh, I remember asking this very wise teacher once, how do you know when you are, who you should study with and open your heart to? And she said, I would never uh, open my heart to someone who they themselves were not in a learning situation at least once a season. Because if you are not in a learning situation once a season, if you are not a learner, then what will happen is you'll become role identified. And this was the phrase she used. Then you will become open to the mischief of the ego. So my greatest piece of advice is find something every quarter that you've never done before and become a learner and put yourself at the feet of others. And that will keep you fresh and open. 
What have been your biggest mistakes, or if you prefer to think of them as learning opportunities, what have been your biggest learning opportunities? Well, my learning keeps going on and on. Yeah. I think my biggest mistake has been um, not trusting the moment, not allowing myself to become a vessel of what is coming through me. That beautiful quote about be something that comes through you. Mm. I always think of trust and control as two sides of the same coin. Where I do not trust a situation, an individual, or a relationship, I will try and control it. And so uh, I sometimes can over-strategize uh, a situation. And, I am, and where I have made mistakes is when I have tried to force my will or control a situation rather than being truly present with what is needed. Who are your key role models or mentors? Angela Sarian, cross-cultural anthropologist. Patrick O'Neill, brilliant teacher. Jane Goodall, hmm. who's been very inspiring for me. Rumi, who I've quoted a number of times. And I'm very compelled by, uh, in my personal life, by the quote by Buckminster Fuller, who I've always respected, which is what he looks and seeks for is a world that works for everyone. Do you have a personal mission? Yeah, well, I gave it earlier. Do as much good as you can. You did say that. That one, yes. That would be my personal mission. Hmm. And have fun. What do you hope your legacy will be? Oh, he connected and he listened. He forgave and he gave. That is my last question. But before I let you go, I want you to just close by telling us the samurai story that I love so much. Uh, yeah. So this is a, uh, I find is a wonderful story. And the story is about a, a, a samurai warrior uh, in ancient feudal Japan who was guarding a road. And a monk approaches him and the samurai pulls out his sword, holds the sword to the monk's neck and asks him three questions in a very threatening way. Who are you? Where are you going? Why are you going? The monk, knowing that any miscalculation in his language would have his head removed from his neck in about a half a second, calmly looks at the samurai warrior and says, how much does the shogun pay you? to guard this road and ask those questions. Samurai takes a step back, looks at him and says, he pays me one bucket of rice a week. And the monk pauses and looks at him and says, I will pay you one bucket of rice a day if you ask me those questions every day. And that idea, who am I, where am I going and why am I going there? I provide that for my clients. But more importantly than that, I find teachers who provide that for me. And more importantly than that, I provide that for myself. And that, my friends, is the extraordinary David Baum. Thank you, David. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. You can learn more about David online at davidbaum.com and by reading his books, Lightning in Bottle and the Randori Principles, both of which are available at amazon.com. You can also join me in following David on Twitter at Dr. David Baum, B-A-U-M, and on LinkedIn. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. 
You can also follow the Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ to learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary. Thank you.